0: You're listening to a Southern Star media production.
1: The murder of Sophie Doscon de Plantier um, happened when I was a young girl. You know, I was 11 at the time. Um, and I think anyone who lived in West Cork at the time, and I'm sure that's probably most of the people listening to this podcast, will remember just how shocking it was, you know. Um, I think when you grow up in an area like this, particularly in the 90s, where crime you know wasn't exactly something that people gave a great deal of thought to you know i know at home that we never locked our doors and my sister and i were given just enormous um freedom just you know we went out in the morning and we you know we kind of appeared when we were hungry to eat dinner and then we were gone again um, and no questions were asked um so i think that when that happened it was so shocking because it felt as if the darkness from the outside world was sort of encroaching upon ours
0: Hello and welcome to the Southern Stars Coronavirus podcast. I'm the news editor Siobhan Cronin, and this week's interview is with Kilty native and award-winning writer Louise O'Neill, whose new book is Just Out. I spoke to her earlier about her decision to base herself in West Cork, the plot of the new novel which is about a murder on a fictional West Cork island, and how she has been spending her time in chronic guilty during the worst days of COVID. So, Louise, let's get straight into the new book, After the Silence, which is behind me here. And I'm almost yeah. finished. With it. I was reading it all last night. I got it yesterday. Um, I would have got it sooner, but I was waiting on the postman, so you can blame, blame on puss. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm loving it at the minute, but just maybe to tell the listener um, what, it's, what it's about and the plot for this one, which is a little bit different from earlier books i think yeah
1: um well after the silence is set on a small island um called Inishroom, which is off the coast um, of cork and uh this very glamorous wealthy family the kinsulas um have set up a world-renowned artist retreat center there and the youngest um Kinsula son who's called henry has married a local woman called keelan and it's at her birthday party that this i mean this very wild birthday party um that this violent storm engulfs the island, completely cutting it off um, from the mainland, and the power goes out, and it's all a bit of a catastrophe. Um, And then the next morning, the body of a woman is found, and no one can get on the island, and no one can get off the island, so it has to have been someone here who did it. Um, And then 10 years later, the murder of the beautiful Nessa Crowley still haunts the Irish people, and then a team of documentary makers come to Innish determined to figure out exactly what happened that night.
0: Great. And would it be fair to say that some real-life events or even some details maybe from real-life events sneak their way into the storyline there? Because even the two documentary makers, we had, of course, the, the West Cork podcast, which was very popular here last year and the year before, two documentary makers coming to Ireland on foot of Mm. having heard the story from a relation. Um, I was just wondering if that, you know, Mm. maybe we we know a little bit more about the background to that one. Yeah, of course. And I mean,
1: you know, obviously, you know, I have to say, and I think anyone who has read the book would understand that the two cases themselves are very different. Um, But, you know, obviously, the murder of Sophie d'Auscon de Plantier um, happened when I was a young girl you know I was 11 at the time um, and I think anyone who lived in West Cork at the time and I'm sure that's probably most of the people listening to this podcast will remember just how shocking it was you know and um, I think when you grow up in an area like this particularly in the 90s where crime you know, wasn't exactly something that people gave a great deal of thought to. You know, I know at home that we never locked our doors and my sister and I were given just enormous um, freedom, just, you know, we went out in the morning and we, you know, we kind of appeared when we were hungry to eat dinner and then we were gone again um, and no questions were asked. Um, So I think that when that happened, it was so shocking because it felt as if the darkness from the outside world was sort of encroaching upon ours. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, and I think it, it ties in with, I suppose, the, the beginning of the, the Celtic Tiger. A lot of ways, I think that that murder almost heralded the end of one era, like the end of, like, you know, uh, the old Ireland. You, yes. and,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, I mean, obviously, I was a child, and I'm not sure there were a lot of people, you know, at that time maybe who would disagree with me, but it's just that was the way that I saw it. And um, so I think that when I heard news about the West Cork podcast. I was just so fascinated and you know I haven't been someone you know I've traditionally been a little bit squeamish about true crime um documentaries um because I think so often there's a lot of attention paid to the uh, murderer or the person who is suspected or the you know whatever rather than the victim themselves you know um in in a lot of let's say particularly American ones I've noticed that so but I, I I was bet into that, um, into the Audible series. Like I listened to all 13 episodes in less than 24 hours. Um, and I think there was a very small part of me, which I, I'd say was probably the 11-year-old girl who really hoped that by the end of it, that these two documentary makers would have solved this crime and they would have, I think, I don't know, given Sophie and her family peace, but in a way, actually, I suppose the people of West Cork piece as well, um, because I think this has cast such a long shadow. Um and well, I mean obviously, you know, real life isn't tied up um quite as neatly um as it is in fiction. But I think when I finished it, I was very surprised actually by how like there was a lot of things that I didn't know about a case that I thought I knew everything about. Um, and I think I had very, you know, by the end of it I was like, I really don't know what happened here. I really don't know who did this and I think that sometimes growing up in this area maybe we were told you know a certain story and I it was all so uncertain by the end of it but I think afterwards it wasn't necessarily this particular case that I kept thinking about it was more the idea of I suppose the idea of outsiders you know the idea of the blow-in, the the, the sassenuk you know and um, and I suppose as well the thought of these two documentary makers coming in to a very small, tightly knit community—you know, with their English accents and you know, asking questions—and um—and I think, especially, I suppose, poking at a wound that had barely covered over. Um, and to me, I think I just I could not stop thinking about it. Um, and that is was where the the seed began.
0: But there, I suppose it does touch on other other themes as well, and. Um, what I what I particularly like about it too is the little interspersing of little words of Irish because it's set on an yeah. island that is Irish speaking, and it the the occupants get the ferry from Baltimore. So I'm just wondering, yeah. is, it, is it Cape Clear? There's an Irish <laughs> <left> there. <laughs>
1: I mean, you know, it was funny. I spoke, when I was doing research, like I spoke to someone from Aaron Moore. I spoke to someone from Inish I spoke to someone from um, Inish um, Moore. I spoke to someone, two people from Cape Clear. And um, so, and I and I picked sort of traditions and sayings um, from each of those to kind of make this fictional island. But for me physically, um, just because I'm kind of lazy and, and you know, the, I, I just physically like Cape Clear is the clearest of all of those islands to me because that's the one that I I, I know the best, you know, that I, I've been going to Cape Clear since I was a child. And um, so I suppose physically it's it's more similar to Cape Clear but I'm very reluctant to sort of say that because obviously it's not it's it's completely fictional. But obviously not just saying, of the yeah, yeah, the getting the from Baltimore. Yeah.
0: And were you one of the Irish college lassies on Cape Clear? <laughs> I, do you know what's terrible
1: is that I never went to Irish college. I feel like I have been deprived of like <laughs> this too. wonderful experience. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, a friends of mine went to Ballyburnie one year um, and my aunt-in-law grew up in first, or, You know, She would have spoken Irish at home. Um, and... I had good enough Irish in school, and you know it was funny when I was when I was writing the book because, as you said, there's Irish going through it. Um, and a very good friend of mine, and Treloch uh, O'Lukla, and helped me. You know, he I would text him and say, "How do you say this?" or "Is this how you would say this?" And and, and then he proofread it afterwards for me. But I've actually signed up um for Irish speaking classes with uh Gael Culture, um which is starting at the end of this month because it actually really brought home to me how poor my own. Irish is now and also I think it, it, it's such a beautiful language you know he would come back and he would say this is how you say this and there's no real direct translation and I just thought god it's like a secret language Um and I, I really I suppose I would love to have like I as I keep saying, like, I'd love to have like a five year old child's like level of Irish. That's that's all I want.
0: Mm, absolutely. I think we all we all seem to come back to it as adults for some reason and it never quite stuck with us as children. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um so can I just ask you um a little bit about the themes of your books? Um as you see behind me, I'm I'm a fan, I have I have all the, the novels. Yeah. <laughs> but um I have found that the themes are quite dark. Now, I was thinking about it last night, and I was thinking what I love about your books is that you kind of draw us in very gently. You think you're reading a lovely light read because you're not a fan of big, convoluted words or really overly colorful descriptive passages. And then you get to the end of the book, or even in the middle, you go, oh My God, this is a really heavy theme. Like you have domestic violence in the current book, you've got murder, you've, you've written about rape, you've written about obsession, misogyny what is it, do you think, in your own psyche that draws you to these very dark themes or is it just they're really good themes to, to write about?
1: I don't know. You know, it's funny. A, a friend of mine who is um, an English author, she sent me a message the other day saying that she had finished After the Silence um, and she said, I'm trying to remember it, but basically something like, what what I marvel at um, is, or what she said, like she said that she marveled at that how I'm very warm and sunny Every time she meets me, you know, Um, and then she said, but then when I read your books, they're always just very dark. And she said, it's just really interesting to see how, how easy it seems to be for you to kind of access that. Um, And like i mean i never want my books to be issues novels i never want them to be preachy i always want them to be complex and and nuanced and complicated and i think particularly in after the silence which is primarily like a psychological thriller like i wanted to make it a page turner i wanted to make it gripping but because it's me i suppose i am always thinking about other topics or other themes that i you know I've, I've written in so many different genres like i've written a dystopian novel i've written contemporary novels i've written a fantasy retelling of the little mermaid this is a psychological thriller, thriller but i think there's a theme or a thread that kind of connects all of the books um and you know i suppose any most authors anyway have i think just certain motifs that they keep returning to because i think you're trying to almost work it out in life and in fiction and for me, I suppose, you know, I am a woman living in a world that sometimes feels like it's maybe not designed for me. Um, and I, you know, I suppose I've experienced sexual trauma, you know, I've, I've struggled with an eating disorder. Um, and I suppose I know what it's like to navigate this world in a female body. Um, and these are topics that, you know, if you look at something like domestic violence, um, the, we talk about coronavirus being a pandemic. I mean, domestic violence is a pandemic. Like it, it impacts a billion people around the world. You know, one in three women will be, um, will experience some kind of um, abuse in their lifetime. Um, and sometimes it can feel very frustrating when that is marginalized as a, as a, a niche topic, you know, or, or a woman's issue, because as I said, it's so prevalent. Um, and as what I found interesting, because the original idea for this book was the murder mystery and was the documentary but the more research that i did into these kinds of cases what i found really striking was that so often if there was a prime suspect in a case and um, and if he was a man and if he was straight and um, a lot of times people would say things like well why does his wife stay and you know why does his girlfriend stay and um and to me it was a really interesting echoing of that very problematic language that we hear concerning victims of domestic abuse you know like god why don't these women just leave um and it's just once i started to think about those parallels and also i suppose so often in psychological thrillers you know you have an unreliable narrator or you have someone who's not quite hasn't has a tenuous grasp on reality maybe or or believes they have a tenuous grasp on reality and for victims who are being emotionally abused or who are victims to gaslighting like it's, it's quite a similar experience in that you also believe that you have a tenuous grasp on reality or you're losing your grasp on reality so to me they felt like really um I don't know like that they just fit together and I think you know I haven't traditionally read a lot of psychological thrillers but over the last few years I have been more drawn to them and I think it's because like I think the bad writers in this genre will use women's bodies and or violence against women as a narrative device and I think that the good writers will explore how women, I think, so often are conditioned to live in fear of violence. Um, and, you know, if you look at someone like a Leanne Moriarty, you know, who explored um, domestic violence with Big Little Lies, or Megan Abbott, um, you know, is incredible. Dorothy Coonsen, uh Tana French, um, you know, uh, Aaron Kelly, with he says, she says, looked at rape culture. Like, it's actually kind of interesting, I think, how those two, like, how this genre seems to tie in quite neatly with the exploration um, of quite dark themes particularly pertaining to women and women's bodies
0: and when you sit down to write the books um louise do you have them very well plotted out in advance or is it a case that when um say that say the protagonist in in the current book do you kind of find that they kind of draw themselves as you start writing and that they start to go in directions without you being conscious of it mm. or, or is that whole is their whole personality mapped out in advance by you
1: um it depends i mean like with this book i did a lot more research than i ordinarily would and um, you know i spent six months researching it because i think there was so many elements to it you know there was um the domestic violence strand which i obviously wanted to speak to survivors about that there was also like life on an island you know what's that like And then also, I suppose, just the actual mechanics of a case like this, you know, having to talk to um, the guards, having to talk to, um, you know, the the former state pathologist of Ireland to try and make sure that everything that I was saying made sense, was plausible, um, and this is kind of how it would happen. So there was an enormous amount of research um, done in it, and I think for me, ordinarily, like I would the characters would really come first so I would really need to feel like I understood Keelan I understood Henry I understood their psychology and um, why they behave the way that they do so you for for me I think before I start I want to have a very clear grounding um, in who these people are um because to be honest voice is so important um and that sense of the that can really I think propel the book um but I did with this one have a very very clear outline um there were certain things like halfway through I had been struggling with um how to tell the documentary style and then I it was so funny I watched this um television program well it's Netflix um and I it was very very trashy it was a Spanish um it's called Elise. it's about this uh spanish teenagers having sex and there's a murder and and they sort of they, they built it around that where that the um police officer is investigating each one of the students and i thought oh this is good like so and then so midway through I knew that I was going to have the actual documentary woven through the narrative so that we could hear from all the different voices, um, you know, whether that was the Islanders or whether it was a garage or whether it was Ness's cousin or, Ness's, or you know, the, the murder victim, her mother or her cousin, um, or, you know, Keelan's son. Um, I think just to kind of give a very broad um, picture of it, but also I suppose to understand that, memory is very fallible um and everyone's version of what happened that night is, is slightly different. So I think for the reader you're never quite sure what to believe or, or who um to trust. Um, so I think and you know that adds I suppose another dimension um of interest when you're dealing with a psychological thriller.
0: So just let's for a moment I I do Would it be fair to say that asking for it has been the most successful book to date? Only that it's it's grown legs into other genres, as in it's been on the stage, and there's been work done on a on a movie of it. Um, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: No, I was I was just going to ask you maybe to expand on on that. Um, how you how you found when your little baby, we'll say, of a book, is kind of taken on board by other people in other media um how, how you feel about that and like would you be happy to see some of the other books go down the, down that road or are you just happy with um
1: well they all the, except for almost love um i mean the movie of only ever yours which has been in production the longest i think is probably the the, the furthest along And um, asking for the the um stage adaptation was incredible um uh, uh, I was going to say um the surface breaks the animation rights have been bought um and with after the silence um i can't really say anything yet but um i think we'll have good Sounds news good. on that um soon <laughs> um, and and uh, yeah um i think it would be like it would, it's, it's quite like i think it would make a good um tv show um but yes i would say after the silence is definitely I suppose, the one that has left its mark maybe um and the thing is as a writer is that you you never know, like you never like if I was looking at the books, do I think after the Silence is the best one or my favorite one, like not necessarily, um but I think sometimes a book comes at the right time, it hits the zeitgeist um people are ready to to read it, um and then a lot of it is word of mouth um and the thing about that is that you just cannot control that. there's so much that like your publisher can do with marketing and you know with. With publicity and you know um, all of that but i think a book is only ever going to take off or sort of i think be embraced by the culture in that way if it's people telling each other you need to read this book you know you have to read this book um have you read this you know asking for it or whatever um and it's it was a very strange experience i mean it was wonderful um it was very humbling um i think as a writer to have something that you've created go out into the world and for people to respond to it and to feel like it has done some good or that it has helped people in some way. Um, I think is really beyond anything that you could have ever wanted or or hoped for. Um, So I'm very proud of that. Um, And I think in a way it's the only book where I really had to, I felt like I had to detach myself from it in a way um, where that, you know, the other books really feel like mine, you know, I feel that they belong to me. Um, Whereas I think with asking for it very early on, I knew that it didn't really belong to me anymore. You know, that it had been taken by other people in a a good way, you know, and sort of that they had taken it to their hearts. And then obviously when the stage adaptation, I was like, this is a new iteration of this. And I think, in a way, it's healthy. And um, to once you've written something, just to let it go. And Elizabeth Gilbert, I think, calls it kicking it to the curb. You know, the, you know, the, you, you you put so much work into the book, and then it comes out, and you have to do the publicity, and you have to do the promotion, and then you can't just stay attached to it because you can't become more attached to the outcome or the inevitable su- success or failure. You can't become more attached to that than the work itself. And um, so right now, you know, I have sort of marked out September for this, and then really it'll just be okay, you know, back to work, back to the desk, because that's the that's the reason why I do any of this, you know.
0: And you had quite though uh, an input, I think, creatively. Well, as in, I know you were at the rehearsals, you were involved with the cast, you. You know, you were you had quite a good relationship, I think, with the whole production team on asking for it. Um, and is is that the same with the? Is it only ever yours that's in production? Is yeah. it? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you know, it's
0: it's interesting because only ever yours they
1: ask me when I write the script, but I just was like, I don't know how to do this. So um, they have someone really amazing working on it, um, and. It's been lovely. It's actually been very interesting because it's so like that book came out in um, 2014. So six years ago now. And realistically, um, like I probably haven't read it in seven years, you know, um, because once they're out, I never read them because I just see the things I want to change and the mistakes I made. And I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have made that creative decision um but uh yeah so this a new script actually just arrived um last week and then we have a phone call and you know because they want to hear but i've actually said to her like i keep saying i'm like this is your baby now like you know it's it's seven years on eight years on since i wrote it and um, you know it's time for i think a fresh retelling of this story and i just think sometimes you know you see with authors that they can get very precious about their work and I think I try and be collaborative and I try and be sort of open to that exchange of ideas because like the book exists the way it is like I wrote it I had control over that I put it out into the world and I think if if there's going to be other um, interpretations of that I think the best way to go into that is sort of with an open mind um and you're not very very.
0: Louise, would you not be extremely nervous of how it how it might come out, and then your name is still attached to it? And no, honestly, and I know maybe maybe I would feel maybe
1: I'll feel differently if it comes out. I mean, I love the script; it's different to the book, but I love the script. And um, maybe I would feel—I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it might, maybe it will be disappointing. Um, I don't think I would feel nervous about it because, again, the the thing is, is that like as I said, it it will, it will never change the book. Like the book is the book. I wrote the book, and um, and if the you know the, the a film or or a TV or a, a play, you know they're entirely different creatures, and I think that I have to. I suppose I, as an artist, I think you respect other artists' creative process, um, and uh, you know I don't want to be too. I don't know. I don't want to be too precious about it. I just don't it's, think. It's, it's <laughs> it's
0: black, Let's see. Magnanimous of you all together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or very trusting maybe of, of other people um can you talk a little bit about the fact that you are in Clannacilty I know you you were you were in New York for a while you came back you were in Dublin for a while I think and now you've kind of made that decision you're, you're building a house I think in Clan that you, you want to work there and live there which is yeah
1: I mean yeah I I love it here And um, you know of course my partner lives in Dublin and so that's a little bit challenging and I think that you know, up until this point, it was very easy doing long distance. You know, um, because we would just go up and down every second weekend, and it was fine because we were both up. So, we both very passionate about what we do, so it felt like actually, in a way, that it was helpful to have the weeks to kind of really focus on our work and then sort of really be together at the weekends. But obviously, because of lockdown, we didn't see each other um, for four months, which was really, really, really challenging. Um, and to the point where I, I I wasn't sure if we were going to make it you know and I think it's now that we've sort of reconnected and I think it's made me realise just how precious that is and how it has to be protected and, and you know minded I suppose a bit so his job is obviously you know he's a journalist and so his job is very Dublin centric um, and I don't know I mean I don't really want to move to Dublin but like I um, you know, a laptop and a you know, like as in I could work anywhere, and so I have you know done some building work here, just renovated a little um farmhouse like right next door to my parents, um, uh, which seemed to me like a good compromise. You know, I said, okay, I don't need to take out a mortgage, like I can just do this little project, have my own space, my own little bolt hole, and then we can kind of decide what you know comes next. But I would be very, very slow, um, to leave West Cork. I just I, I mean, I love it here. I There's something, I think, if you grow up in the country and if you grow up by the sea, I think there's a part of you that always kind of needs it, like you crave it a bit. Um, and if I spend too much time in the city now, I just, I'm like, oh, God, I need to get to Nshtani or, you know, I just need to go for a swim or I just need to do something like that. Um, I don't know, the wildness of this area, the just this kind of stark natural beauty, um, it's really it's really inspiring. And I think for me, because I'm someone who can tend to, you know, get anxious and I can tend to kind of um live very much in my head, actually being somewhere where I can turn off my phone and go outside and just think none of that matters, none of that is real. This is the only thing that is real right here, what I can see, you know, my feet on the ground. I and to me there's something very um i don't know it just it feels very grounding and and it feels very healing even though i know that sounds very a bit pretentious but you know that's kind of that's how i feel
0: well i, I mean i i think that you know the sea has been a remedy for lots of people for mental health issues you know their therapist would tell them go to the water and you know it does it does help yeah. so i mean i don't think it's a bit twee or, or cliched or anything yeah but also, you're also very close physically and emotionally to your family, and that's always come through. I mean, time I've interviewed you, you've mentioned, you know, your, your dad in particular, he's influenced, you've talked about your, your mum's support, and then also your grandmother who passed away in the last year or so, I think, was it, Louise? Mm, um, yeah. So, I mean, do you, do you find it difficult being that close to home and not having her around? Oh God!
1: As soon as you said that, I thought I was going to start crying. So yes, I do find it, and um, and you know, it's it'll be two years in January now, and um, I think it's it's very strange. Like you know, it's funny. My cousins um my uncle who inherited um the farm, um his two daughters, and um, sometimes you know on on Instagram because they would have lived quite very close, like um my grandmother, the farmhouse was by the farm and then they built a house kind of just at the end of the lane And um, so sometimes they will share photos um, on instagram just in the view or 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 you know if they if they're inside in my grandmother's house or um and it, you know every time I see it I feel very lonely um because I think it's you know it's sorry sorry it's even I think seeing her chair and just thinking oh god you know that she'll never be in that chair again or you know um so it's yeah it's it just felt like such a huge loss and i think it's you know it i it, for me it was very interesting because i was thirty three when she died and you know like i wasn't and she was eighty five so it wasn't that um that she was young or that i was young but it, it it the only way i can describe it is like it felt like my childhood was over and at 33, I was like, well, obviously my childhood is long over. Like that's not something I was kind of holding on to. But I think it was this real realization of everything about it, you know, like that house and 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 her face and 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 her bake, you know, it was just everything. I was like, oh, I'll never, I'll never see her again. I'll never um, have her brown bread again. I'll never go over home and walk in and see her sitting in her chair again. Um, and it just it felt just unbelievably devastating um and I think it it was interesting because I I saw sometimes when a grandparent dies you know you're not really afforded the same sort of time or space maybe to grieve it you know people are very much like you know you know this isn't a tragedy and the thing is is that like I know it's not a tragedy like when I was 14 my uncle who was 30 died so like I understand like what a tragedy looks like. And you know, it wasn't that I was confusing that, but I think it still just felt like this I suppose just the end of something. and um, and just trying to grieve that and and move on. Um and I suppose just come to terms with how much she had meant to me. and um, and I suppose that sense of there being someone in your life, you know, who just completely loves you unconditionally and accepts you um absolutely as you are. Uh, which is quite rare actually um and you know she was always that presence um in my life and but you know i mean every you know since i since the moment i kind of understood what death was i was afraid of her dying and um, like i remember when i was a child like i must have been like five or six maybe um asking her you know i was like i really i don't want you to die you know and i mean it was just so funny looking back because she must have been like in her late 50s going okay <laughs> i'm not that old you know um but um and she 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 bent down and she said, you know, like everyone has to die, and the Lord calls us home in His time. But she said it won't be for a very long time yet, you know. Um, and uh, I suppose you know she was she was right. But uh, yeah, so it's just been, you know, it's just a process. It's part of life. Um, but I I do, and I think you know I've spoken about her a lot um, during this uh, promotional period, and obviously the book um, after the silence is dedicated to her. And you know she would pretend she would have pretended to be so embarrassed by all of it but secretly really enjoy it you know that kind of real Irish woman thing of being like oh god it's mortified but like absolutely like relishing all of it at the same time
0: and like are you conscious when you're writing uh, or like when she was alive were you conscious that oh granny would be reading this and now that she's passed you're conscious she's on your shoulder you know from like your sex scenes or i mean honestly no and
1: you know it was funny because like she read she read the i mean the examiner column was probably more what i was worried about because i don't necessarily, i don't actually think she ever read the books like she bought the books and she would have bought them for friends and, and the um she went to a daycare center every uh tuesday and the there was a man who used to come and pick her up so he would she would have bought the books and gotten them signed for his children and uh, for his daughters who were in their 20s and um, so she'd be very proud of it, but I don't necessarily think she would have read them. I mean, she never said it to me, but like she would have read the column every week. Um, and, you know, I remember, like I do remember one piece that I wrote about having sex on on the first date. And I did text my aunt-in-law and I was like, look, Collette, can you just make sure, like, if if you're dropping the paper over to granny, like, just tear that page out. Warner. <laughs> i like, think i'd be more embarrassed than she was but like i will say you know she never once said to me you know particularly now coming up to the repeal referendum and you know i would have written extensively about abortion i would have written extensively about the catholic church um and like two of my grand uncles like one of whom is who's dead now but the other um, one is i like is like another grandparent to me i absolutely adore him were priests and like I visit Father Khan and he is in a retirement home now in Dalgan um so I, I visit him regularly and I write to him and and you know he would have read my column and they were very they were very accepting of it like there was no and I mean this is like a man who like he lived in Korea like he moved to Korea like in the 50s like after the Korean like war and like the place the soul was like a, a shell and like there was never once a I'm dis disgusted by you or you should never have written that. It was very much like, okay, this is your opinion. Um, and that's fine. You know, it was and like my grandmother I remember a friend of hers once saying to her, um, my mother told me this, um, because obviously she would never praise me to my face like that would have been Oh, now, in case I would have gotten notions, Siobhan, like that would have just been
0: beyond her. <laughs> get but, um,
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but she said uh, uh, my mother said that this woman came up to her um and she said something like, Oh, you know, it was a disgrace what Louise wrote in her last column. Um I think I've obviously been criticizing the church um and the sex scandals and, and, and the cover of, of sexual abuse um and I was using that as a way of talking about um repeal um and the referendum. And my, my mother said that my grandmother bristled and sort of stood up to her, she was very, she was quite short, you know, and sort of stood up to her full height um, and said, um, well, you know, the only, Louise, the only thing that Louise ever wants to do is help people. And sort of like, you know, like sped off, you know, very, very insulted. Um, and I think it was that she was very... She was very quiet in like her support and in her love and everything about her was kind of very understated. But also, you were never, you would never doubt it either. You know, you knew like it was just as I said, this kind of unconditional love. But
0: well, she but kept, I really appreciate. She but, kept all all the clippings, Louise, didn't she? Of everything yeah. you ever wrote. Yeah,
1: yeah. When when we were cleaning out her house afterwards, we found this drawer and it was full of all my columns every interview that I'd ever given every feature every review like everything and I had no idea that she was keeping any of this but she had it all kept um in this drawer and it was just and I think you know I was really lucky actually because you know so many people would have asked me you know do your parents get uh, I suppose a bit strange or do they try and you know, tell you to stay quiet or not to talk about that subject, or you know, to, I was just to censor you in a way. And I was like, no, I've all, I, they've never once ever said to me you shouldn't write about that or you should, you know, that's not. They, they would always have said, you know, you this is your story or this is your life, and you know, you you must do what you feel is right. But I was extraordinarily lucky that my grandmother never said, I'm disappointed in you or I'm horrified by this or, you know, she really just. But you know, it was the same way when I was a child. Like I used to go to, we used to go visiting to her, um, her brothers and sisters, and I would get up on the table and I would do these dances, and I said they were just thought I was insane. Um, and there was never get down off the table. There was never be quiet, you know, or you're embarrassing me. Or it was just sort of that's Louise, she is who she is. That's fine. And honestly it's such a gift to have been given and um, as a child but also just as a person i just think it's an incredible gift to give someone it, in a sense of i love you just the way you are
0: Un- unconditional love basically yeah um can we just touch for one minute on your time in new york because you said to me before that you were you were working in the fashion industry there and you really found it quite difficult and it struck me as you felt it was quite shallow and I've always been surprised I'm always waiting for the next book to be about the fashion industry and I don't know (laughs) if that's coming yet but can you tell me a little bit about it then and um uh, because for most girls of your age that would have been a dream job and you know working in New York and fashion but you didn't Mm. you didn't like it at all really
1: I mean, I don't know if I would say shallow because you know a lot of my friends still work in the industry, and like I love like when a friend of mine who's a, a fashion editor, and she just did this incredible cover because she's a fashion editor of um, uh, garage um or garage as they would say, um, and they did one with Michaela Cole, you know the um, creator of I Will Not I um, I May Destroy You and it was it was honestly like looking at art like the clothes were incredible the styling was amazing so i think i still have such an appreciation of the the level of artistry that goes you know from the the hair to the makeup to the fashion stylist to designers to the fashion editor that goes into creating something like that so it's not that i thought it was shallow i think it was more there were a few elements to it. I think firstly, it was way too high pressured for me. And um, I think I realized pretty early on, you know, it was, was coupled with a city like New York, which is very fast paced, um, which is kind of driven on ambition and, and drive and, and sort of like just this relentless kind of frenetic energy. And then to be, I suppose, in an industry or to be in an office where everyone was very respectful. Like, it wasn't like, you know, the devil wears Prada, but it was quite a high pressurized job. Um, and, you know, it was very long hours. And it, was there was very little...
0: What was your role in there?
1: Oh, sorry. Um, I was working um, as an assistant. Like I was interning as an assistant to the senior style director. Um, so it's a lot of sort of, like, dealing with um, samples and and it's it's kind of hard to like i'm trying to like you know all the clothes that come in like every single piece that comes in has to be photographed and then it, you send it to a shoot and then when it comes back from the shoot and it can be covered in i mean in those days things are different now because budgets are smaller but let's say if it had been sent to miami and it would come back and it's all sand and you're like okay look 31 from Dolce and gabbana earrings hat um dress shoes bracelet and then you're like oh shit we've only got one earring and then you've got to find the earring because if you don't find the earring like the pure Dolce to. is going to go crazy and so it just like it was quite like I suppose in a way like the attention to detail that was required um, and the level of focus and the level of sort of nearly obsessiveness you know um just didn't didn't suit me and I think as well I just constantly felt like I was going to have a heart attack and I really didn't want to have a heart attack over losing a pair of Dolce & Gabbana earrings in Miami you know I was like I don't want this to be the way that I go um and I suppose because I had suffered you know with an Asian disorder for most of my adult life and I had a relapse while I was working there and um, and I I think there was two again I think it was a way of relieving stress because I was in this job that was that I found enormously stressful um it was also a way I think of numbing out because I was in a job that I felt like I wasn't good at and for me like to feel like I wasn't good at something meant that I wasn't good enough as a human being. Like so, I really internalized all of that. And then I think thirdly, you're also in an industry which does fetishize thinness and beauty, um, and there was you know a lot of talk about food and and weight and diets in the office, which to be fair is not unique to offices that are run by fashion magazines you know I think that's quite quite a common experience so I think all of those things together felt like this perfect storm where you know I just started to restrict my food and to lose weight um so I think that when I started working with a therapist um, in New York who was amazing she was very I think she was really pushing me to sort of look at like how society and how like living in a in a world that teaches women that their weight and their physical attractiveness, you know, correlates to their worth as a human being. I think the impact that that had had on me emotionally and mentally and how that had manifested itself as an eating disorder, it sort of became impossible for me to feel comfortable, I suppose, to continue working in an industry that I felt like maybe perpetuated that. Um, but I suppose it, it's it's too simplistic to sort of say, oh, the, you know, the fashion industry is... is um, is responsible for anorexia or you know anything like that because I think it's such a complex issue and my therapist always says that like your genes kind of um put the bullets in and then the environment pulls the trigger so it's sort of a mixture of both you know
0: and and now that you've come back to to West Cork do you feel very safe do you feel like safe from safe from anorexia you know safe from you know the 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 horrors that that you have gone through you know as a young a younger woman well i mean you protected. know
1: I'm, I'm, yeah i mean i i'm 35 now and i had my i think was it, it was three year um anniversary sort of of recovery because i mean i think when i when i came there would have been periods of time like i did very well with, like for about six months when i was in new york actually um because of this incredible therapist that i was seeing. And I remember when I was going home, she said, "You we need to make sure now that you're seeing someone, you know, when you when you get back." And I, I kind of, I don't know. I thought I didn't, see, I didn't really find anyone that I connected with, and um, and there was someone in Cork that seemed really good, but I thought, oh, that's too far to travel. And I think I, I think I got a bit complacent and I thought, oh, I'll be fine. You know, it, it'll be fine. Whereas really six months is very early on in recovery. Um, so I relapsed and then I sort of was back and forth where I might have periods of like five months where I'd be fine. And then, you know, maybe I'd have a small relapse and then I'd kind of get back on the wagon. And then I think that when um, asking for it came out, it was such an overwhelming experience. Um, and I think you do become like, you know, I'm just after a promo cycle with after the silence. And like, I would have had to have made an appointment with my therapist going, I'm feeling very conscious of my body right now because of getting my photo taken or because of going on television or, you know, you know, all of those things that sort of bring that home a bit. Um so I I it was very bad um in 2016 like I always say that it was the best year of my life professionally and it was just a nightmare on a on a personal level and I was living here I was living at home and I'm just like really 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 bad um and you know my parents were really trying um to help me um but I just couldn't seem to I just couldn't seem to kind of I don't know I just couldn't seem to pull myself out of it um and then i think i was writing two books in 2017 you know i was writing almost love and i was writing after the silence and i started to think about okay these books are going to be released within two months of each other in 2018 and i thought if i'm not if i'm not in recovery i am going to i won't survive it like i think it was a genuine and and people think that seems a bit dramatic but when you're putting your body under that much pressure like and you're not feeding it and like it's just like and I kept I kept having this kind of recurring thought where I'm going to have a heart attack and my heart is going to give out. because that had been something when I was 21 and when I had been admitted to John and God with anorexia that they were very concerned about um, my heart so I kept thinking I was like it's just not going to be able to withstand this so I started seeing I started going to the um eating disorder um, center in Cork, which I think is imperative. And now when people come to me and they ask me for help, I'm like, you can't just go to a normal therapist. You have as brilliant as they are. Mm -hmm. Like you have to go to someone who is a specialist in this because it would be like having cancer um, and going uh, and expecting your GP to treat you. Like you need an expert. You need someone who's a specialist in this. So like I worked very closely with them um, and it was, it was it, like, you know, you you talk about sometimes like something being an overnight success or something being an overnight, like that it just all comes together. But I think it had been years of like therapy and years of trying to work with this. And suddenly I think I just was ready to kind of let it go. Um, and I have been in full recovery now for three years. Um, and I think this is the first time in my life where this feels normal. Because I think that when you have something like this, like I developed, I was around fourteen and a half, kind of fifteen, when I first developed an eating disorder, and it was a part of my life until I was thirty-three. So for the majority of my adult life, I, have, I, I haven't known what it's like to eat normally. I don't. I I didn't know what it was like to feel full. I didn't know what it was like, really, even to feel hungry. Like I just didn't have any sort of awareness of what that meant, like what it meant to have a normal relationship with food. And now like, I suppose the freedom that comes with just eating when I'm hungry and stopping when I'm full, being like, oh, I feel like some chocolate today and having some and then just not thinking about it um, is honestly, it, it, I cannot explain, it feels like two entirely different people. Um, like if you, sometimes when I think about the person that I was in, you know ten years ago or two thousand and twelve two thousand and thirteen two thousand and sixteen it's like you're it's like you're talking about a distant cousin or something you know someone that I know but not very well um and I think it's the freedom but that's what I think people who maybe are going through it can't even begin to understand because and anyone who's had an addiction will i think or recovered from it understands that because you you devote so much time to the addiction, you know, you devote so much time and energy and the secrecy and, and, and all of that, that I think goes into, to maintaining this pretense that everything is okay. That when you, when you give, when you let go of that, all of a sudden you look around and you're like, my God, I have so much time. I don't even know what to do with any of this. Um, And I, I think the reason, you know, people sometimes ask like, why do I, why do I talk about this? Or why do I want to be so we'll open about it. Um, and I think firstly, I suppose the culture of shame um, that surrounds eating disorders um, is is very it's very harmful. Um, and I think it actually perpetuates the eating disorder itself because you feel you, you engage in the behaviors and then you feel shame about engaging in the behaviors. And then in order to numb out from that shame, you engage in the behaviors. So it's like this really vicious cycle that just goes on and on and on and um, so i think that like eliminating the shame and the secrecy and talking openly about it is is important and and also from this perspective i think i'm evangelical about saying to people full recovery is possible because i think i had just kind of accepted that this was always going to be a part of my life I would probably manage it that maybe I'd be 80% um, recovered or, you know, that I would, I would restrict maybe only in times of stress or, you know, whatever. So I think to, to to look at it from this vantage point and to be able to say to people, if I can recover after 17 years of like a very intensive eating disorder, anyone can do this. That's,
0: that's, that's lovely, a positive um, note. And I'm always reluctant to go to places like that with people, even when they say they will talk about it because most people aren't as open and honest as you. And I think it's fantastic. There must be so many people out there suffering and they don't hear many people talking about anorexia. So, you know, well done on that. You also went off social media for a while, Louise. And I often wondered, was that part Because it can, social media can be such a nasty, horrible place. Do you think that had any part in your recovery, just getting, getting away from it for a while?
1: Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, I suppose, to be honest, I think part of the recovery was just taking care of myself. Like, being like, I'm an adult, learning to cook for myself, learning to, like, not push myself if I was tired, like, going to bed. Like I, This sounds... So basic to most adults, but I think when you have had an um, an addiction or an illness like this from a young age, it kind of stunts you emotionally. So you almost feel like in your you know when you recover that you're trying to figure out how to like actually function as as an adult in the world. Um, and I think a lot of it was just setting boundaries for myself and saying, I don't need to do this. You know, I don't need to be these you know a punching bag for these people. Um, and I so I came off uh Twitter and, and Instagram for well Instagram for 18 months and I've been off Twitter in nearly 2 years but my partner actually um is in charge of my Twitter account now just for promo purposes so that's lovely so I don't have to deal with it I don't have to think about it you know he just tweets from my um from my account of the uh, one day there last week he forgot to switch accounts and he started um tweeting about the bohemians which are his favorite um soccer
0: team and i was like okay
1: very <laughs> off topic. please keep, keep to the subject
0: yeah people um, might spot but, that one i think <laughs>
1: yeah but i think you know the thing is with social media is that again you know i suppose it's too simplistic to say it's, it's either all bad or it's all good because i think that for a lot of people like you know we wouldn't have had the Me Too movement without social media like Black Lives Matter that has been propelled through social media um, and those are just two such incredibly important movements. So and I think that so it I suppose it has created the funny thing about it is that is that it actually allows people to be very empathetic but it also sort of seems to weaponize cruelty as well. Like I was I had this um, DM this morning on Instagram, which I was quite surprised by because Instagram is normally a very safe space. Um, And it was, uh, oh, you know, just basically, fuck you, you fucking feminist. Um, I wish you would kill yourself, Um, you ugly conscious. And I was just like, and then it was was really strange because I looked on his account because I always do this just to see if anyone I know follows him or, you know, whatever. How many and first followers the, they
0: have is usually a good clue as well. Uh, yeah, exactly.
1: But what was really interesting about this was it wasn't anonymous. Um, it was his own account. And the first person that he followed was Pieta House. I just thought, like, after telling me to kill myself on World Suicide Prevention Day, and then you look and you see that someone's following Pieta House, it's very it's very strange and i think i really noticed that with um the caroline flack uh situation because it was just so sad when she died and i remember i, I wrote a piece about it for the for my column in the examiner and i was i was um looking i you know, i I'm not, as i said i'm not on twitter but sometimes i'll search uh for things to see sort of how people are responding to it um, so I did that with with Caroline Flack and I thought it was really interesting the amount of people who were, first of all, like, you know, blaming the media, saying the media were a disgrace that they had caused this. And then they were saying, you know, like, hashtag be kind. And I started looking back through some of these people through their older tweets and like this really vicious commentary about Meghan Markle, you know, um, implying that she was, you know, whatever, I'm not going to repeat any of it. And like quite racist rhetoric and really, like, these awful comments about Taylor Swift or or whoever, you know, like their bodies. And I just thought the cognitive dissonance that it takes to sit down and send a tweet saying, hashtag be kind, the media, you know, should hang their heads in shame because of the way that they've treated this woman. And then three days earlier to have been using really racist and misogynistic language to tear apart Meghan Markle, who was a new mother at the time, it is beyond me. It is beyond me. And I think it's just I, I don't know. I find it very, very strange. And I think that people I suppose really need to look at you like, know, are you treating other people the way you would want to be treated? Are you treat even if they're celebrities, even if you think that they are rich and famous and lucky and that you're, you know, whatever, like there's still someone's Daughter, they're still someone's friend. They're still someone's, you know, like husband or partner or whatever. And it's like, how would you want if that was your child? If that was your friend, like, how would you want them to be treated? Would you want people leaving messages on their DMs telling them to kill themselves? Like, you know, whenever I write a piece about recovery, there'll always be someone who'll say, "Yeah, you're you're so fat now. You looked way better when you were when you were when you were thinner." And I was like intellectually like I know that's not true like intellectually I know that like I'm healthier now and that I mean not that there's anything wrong with being fat but you know intellectually I know that I'm not fat and but like the eating disorder part of my brain kind of kicks in and goes well maybe this person is right and you just think my god you have taken five minutes out of your day and you could jeopardize my recovery like I could be dead in six months time with this because you just felt like taking me down a peg or two. And there's something about that, that really frightens me, I think, because mm-hmm. it, 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 I, I suppose it's so beyond my comprehension of how we should behave as human beings or how we should treat one another. Um, I
0: don't know. Yeah. Sorry for that yeah. little
1: rant there. Just no, the, you're, kind you're of fine.
0: I think there's probably a story to all those people um, who react like that, that they have their own story to tell. I think, I don't know, was it Tina Fey? or some other american comedian had a response very similar to yours and she started to engage with the person and uh they went down a route of him eventually apologizing and saying you look my life is really crap right now and i didn't mean to take it out on you and you were just the first person that came across my path i saw the tweet and they ended up i think she sent him i think she sent him to rehab or something anyway she ended up helping him and they became great friends and um, so you know that won't be happening here Siobhan that <laughs> okay. won't be happening here I'm sorry, okay. sorry. <laughs> oh look that's one one little gem in a sea of an awful pain that I was trying to trying to show you there but I know, <laughs> I know. they don't they don't all work out like that unfortunately no I don't think they do but um so I, I i just noticed we've gone way over time but can i just oh sorry to, no it's, it's wonderful, it, it's wonderful. I, I always
1: tend to go on and on and on like it's, oh, no, especially no. in podcasts i'm just like
0: <laughs> <laughs> no i i really enjoyed it but i did want to ask you your recommendations because it's something that people always love to hear from other people what you watched on oh. on netflix or what podcast you've listened to during the pandemic that really oh. you or has stayed with you or you'd recommend
1: Yes, okay, well, podcast um I absolutely love a podcast called Keep it and it is these three Americans it's um who sort of discuss pop culture and politics, and they're very funny, and um, so I really enjoy that and um, and I love uh not without my sister, um which is an Irish podcast, and it's actually quite funny because it's about these two sisters and I remember before I started listening thinking like that's quite a specific like it's just going to be about you and your family but actually the funny thing is sometimes the more specific you are the more universal it is and um, so I found that really really just laugh out funny and just incredibly relatable books um I think oh I absolutely adored The Vanishing Half um by Brit Bennett um oh it's just a, such a stunning book like I loved her first book um and she just knocked it out of the park with this and I think it's it's just, it's a perfect combination of a really clever conceit in that it's set in this um, fictional town where um, these black Americans, um, light-skinned black Americans, um, kind of keep marrying each other um, in the hopes that their children will become um, lighter and lighter skinned. Um, and, uh, and then these two twins um, who, and one of them, uh, I suppose, disappears and, and marries a white man and passes for white and this is kind of 1960s 1950s 1960s and um, and it's just so it's it's I think the idea is really clever the hook is really clever it explores issues of race and colorism and um, within the black community in a really nuanced way and then the writing is just beautiful like line by line it's just so beautiful so I just would just cannot recommend that book um highly enough
0: so and just then, mention the name again, Louise.
1: Oh, sorry. It was The Vanishing Half by Brit Bennett. Okay. Um, and she's just oh, an incredible writer. Um, and then Netflix. Um, oh, you know what I did love was Never Have I Ever, and um, it's um the Min Mindy Kaling show, um, and oh god, it's so good. It's about this uh, young, um, uh, Indian American girl whose father dies, um, and she loses the. Use of her legs, I mean, which sounds really tragic, but it's honestly so funny. Like, the whole thing is brilliant, and it actually deals with grief and trauma in an incredibly smart way. That actually, I think is because it, you know, she gets quite she she then she's determined that this really hot guy in her class that she's going to have sex with him, and this is all she can think about is having sex with this really hot guy like she's fifteen and literally, you know hormones are going wild and it's all she can think about and it's just really funny and smart, but so moving like the last two episodes. I mean I started watching it I think it was at 3 p.m and I was awake because I think I'm not sure how many episodes were in it and I was still awake at 3 a.m going I have to finish this I can't I can't I, I, not hope, finish
0: it, it. I hope it had a happy ending with that plot. Oh,
1: but I don't know I, I mean it was a happy ending but it was so moving like I was bawling because I think it was just the mother-daughter relationship and how fraught that had been since their thought the father had died and it's it, oh i absolutely adored it so there i'm getting very passionate here about my
0: recommendations <laughs> okay well i must check those out they're a little bit unique as well <laughs> yeah. thank, you. thank you very much and thank you for joining this w- us this week on the podcast louise and best of luck with you, oh, thank you so much. It's, just, it's out now after the silence buy it go buy it <laughs> <laughs> and so to this week's newspaper Our lead story is about a major new tourism campaign that Fortier Ireland is about to launch to boost tourism in a sustainable way to the three most remote peninsulas in West Cork. More details of that inside. We also have some lovely photos of this year's Leaving Certs and a nice story about Fola Daly from Skibbereen, who is hoping to be a fifth generation GP after getting eight H1s in her grades. We also have plenty of photos of this year's leaving search dotted throughout the paper this week. We also have the case involving unsettling calls which were made last week to the family of murdered badnes student Cameron Blair. And inside, with the courts getting busier once again, we have a number of West Westcourt court, court cases. One involves some distressing information on animal neglect, while another is a report of a man charged with an alleged sexual assault in the region. There is also some upsetting details of a victim impact statement from the daughter of a woman who was knocked down and killed while cycling on the N71 outside Skibbereen last year. But we also have a lovely story about Kinsale rallying around to help a family of triplets and four sets of twins who are currently at school in Union Hall. The people of Enniskine and Balanine want their toilets upgraded, we hear. And we also have a story of some families going into self-isolation as a result of a COVID case near their village. In features, we have a look inside the new Visitor Museum at Clonacilty Black Pudding. And a former guest on this podcast, Dr Tara Shine, gives us her 10 easy tips to help save our planet. Our motoring page is a review of the new Corsa E, and there's a worrying report in Cork Airport on our business pages as the airport has seen business collapse due to COVID. A beautiful split-level home in Skull is for sale for just under half a million in our property pages. And we also have some useful details on home improvement grants for sustainable options and the elderly, also in property. Farming covers the appointment of yet another agriculture minister. And 50 Years of the Inchidani Lifeboat is our feature story on the cover of our community section this week. In her COVID diary, Emma Connolly is thrilled to finally get the frame for her swinging seat, and our health column talks about the pros and cons of being a night owl. We also have our usual local notes pages packed with news from your local area and a super sports section, as always. So don't forget, if you can't get to the shops, you can subscribe online by going to southernstar.ie and clicking on the e-paper tab, or call the office on 028 2100 for a postal copy to be sent out to you. And now for this week's musical treat. The Southern Star Sessions is a popular segment which has been recorded at various intervals in recent years at the Southern Star Studio. It has featured both visiting and local musicians, and each week we are asking our podcast hosts to pick their favourite sessions as we all enjoy a bit of nostalgia. So this week I have picked a great recording from three years ago. Paul Tiernan is no stranger to music and has been in the business for many years but we really enjoyed this recording in the Star Studio in April 2017 of a song called A Mother's Sin. For more from Paul, see paultunin.com.
2: Now my love, you say You never want this, And how the hours and days have all and so we stand side by side like fighters in a box and rain cutting scar, bleeding hard neither. if I could, as if I could change what comes of this, devils dancing on wind and rain, ice melting in a glass. now my love you say you never want to and how the hours and days and hours have all and so we stand Side by side Like fighters in a box And rain Cutting scar Bleeding hard Neither caring Who should win And if I could As if I
0: Southern Star Coronavirus Podcast don't forget to like, share and subscribe to our podcast which is available now on iTunes, Spotify YouTube, Acast Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts
1: Thanks for listening to another Southern Star Media podcast production Stay connected to West Cork
2: by subscribing to our e-paper and support local quality and trusted journalism Visit www.subscribe.southernstar.ie